0: Hello, Redeemer. Once again, Um, as Pastor Craig mentioned, I am John. the assistant pastor here at Redeemer, and it is a pleasure to be with you here this morning to give you God's word. Um, I am really honored and thrilled to be giving the sermon here this morning, and if I'm being honest, I'm also feeling a bit nervous. Uh, This is the first sermon that I'm giving you live and in person, officially installed, ordained as your assistant pastor, and They've, they've done the science of, of first impressions. And one universal constant is that no matter what I do in ministry from here on out, what matters most to you in this room is how I do in these next 30 to 35 minutes that will be forever etched in your brains of opinion on me. So no pressure. So, um, But as I begin, I know that I've got three things against me. One I'm from the North, uh, more specifically from the Mid-Atlantic, a strange land where we say you all as two separate words to describe the second person plural. Uh, Two, second thing against me, I'm indifferent to college football and suddenly I found myself in the middle of a civil war in this church between Gamecocks and Tigers and you are forcing me to make a choice that will alienate like a good portion of the congregation. Third thing against me is I'm one of those millennials that you were warned about. I've got a Facebook account, and I know how to use it. And to make matters worse, I'm a millennial pastor, so you're already predisposed to think that I'm going to quote the musical Hamilton as a sermon illustration and talk about the benefits of cold brew while you study your Bible. I know some of you are looking at me a bit strangely, so maybe that's why we're talking about the text and scripture that we're talking about today. This comes from Luke 18, 9 through 14. So let's turn, tap, swipe for our Bibles there, open up our bulletins. And here are four things that we want to talk about that will make up our time here today. Number one, how we view ourselves. Number two, how we view others. Number three, how should we view ourselves. And number four, how Jesus views himself and how Jesus view us. So I'll repeat those things again as you're turning your Bibles there, Luke 18, 9-14. Four things we want to talk about today. How we view ourselves, how we view others, how should we view ourselves, and how Jesus views himself and us. So let's read from God's Word, Luke 18, 9-14. In our tradition, sometimes the pastor will say at the end of the conclusion of the reading, This is the word of the Lord. And at the end of the reading, the congregation will respond by saying, Thanks be to God. So, not to throw too much of a new wrinkle into things, but let's go ahead and try that after we read the text together. So, here we go Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can we pray before we begin? Father, um, we thank you for this parable that your son Jesus has given to us. We we pray for greater understanding of this text to make us see that we need less of us and more of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So let's dive right into this. Um, If there's one stereotype that you will hear about Christians, in particular about American Christians, uh, you will hear that all the time, Christians are Pharisees. And the very fact that as I say that, that no one is staring at me in shock means that you've probably heard this stereotype once or twice around the block. Maybe if you're even one of those really good Christians, uh, you will preempt the criticism and call yourself a Pharisee. And we all know what that stands for when we say that. We all have an understanding in today's language when we say that Christians are Pharisees or even when we say I'm a Pharisee, it means hypocrite. It means religious bigot. It means someone who's trying to save themselves by being a good person and following rigid laws that maybe even God never put into place. It, re- it means someone who says one thing and does completely another We have never lived in an age or a time where someone has called someone a Pharisee in a positive light. I mean, how strange would that sound, right? That Pastor Craig, he loves God's people so well. He was such a Pharisee this morning in his prayer. We don't say it like that, right? Seth Morgan running the live stream, serving God's people. I, I wish I could be a Pharisee like him one of these days. We're so used to this term being a negative title. That we forget to put ourselves in the shoes of the people of the story. And at this part of Luke's gospel, we are in the middle of this section where we get to hear from Jesus. And and he is teaching to crowds of people. And what is Jesus saying? Well, he's doing what every good preacher does. He's he's addressing head issues and heart issues. He's he's talking about sin. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He he talks about marriage. He talks about how to treat others. And, and, And he's drawing this crowd of people to him. All different kinds of people are just flocking to Jesus to hear what he has to say. Sinners, tax collectors, his disciples, the rich, the poor, the scribes, friends, seekers, and Pharisees. And when you get all of these people in a room together, what's inevitably going to happen? First impressions. Everyone's looking around this great crowd and going, is, is that who I think it is? Why is he here? Why is she here? Why would that kind of person dare show their face here? Can you believe that this person would show up to this room to hear this rabbi teach? Notice in verse 9 of our passage here today that Jesus' purpose in telling this story, this parable, is to all the people in the room who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, this isn't just limited to the religious people in the room that Jesus was talking and sharing this message. This is the reality of everyone. No matter who you are, you are bent to towards viewing others better than, I'm sorry, viewing yourself better than and more righteous than others. The the value of how we view ourselves always in the story of our lives is that we are the heroes and those people over there are the enemy. This is the narrative that has driven our world today. It's divided our country. It's divided Christianity. Everything from the most frivolous to the most serious and pressing issues of our day, right, let, me, let me give you a little bit of an exercise, right? what, what thoughts, feelings, emotions come to your mind as I, as I present this, these, 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 uh, these pairs? Apple versus Android. Texas barbecue versus Carolina barbecue. Myrtle Beach versus Sullivan's Island. Some of you apparently had very strong opinions on this. I did not know this, right? Urban versus rural. Planned versus spontaneous. Secular versus sacred. Modernism versus postmodernism. Gen Z versus everyone. (laughs) You don't know what Gen Z is 20 years or younger, right? Now, what associations came to your mind? What mental pictures formed as you're engaged now in a world that has told you to define yourself, your character, your righteousness, based upon your opinion in all these categories. And I could have chosen much more controversial ones, couldn't I? In all these micro-choices, it shapes you to think that I am the good guy, and those people over there are the enemy. Those people there are unrighteous. Those people there are deserving of my contempt. So, how is Jesus intending to speak to this issue of how we view ourselves? How we view ourselves self righteously? This is tricky, right? Because, after all, one thing that self righteous people hate is to be told that they are self righteous. So, what does Jesus do? He does whatever great teacher does, he couches this lesson in a story. This is why Jesus chooses the characters that he does. Why does Jesus choose the Pharisee? You see, not because the Pharisees back in Jesus' day were a corrupt group of religious bigots. But the Pharisees in Jesus' time is the model of moral perfection. It's the epitome. These are individuals who spoke with original religious authority. They had political influence. They were academically learned. They were thought to be rational and practical. Religious people compared to the wild teachings of the Sadducees and the Essenes that everyone tried to avoid. To be called a Pharisee is not an insult in the slightest measure in Jesus' time. And the setup that Jesus is presenting in the story when he says a Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple to pray is that it could only end badly for one person, and it wasn't supposed to be the Pharisee. Pharisees kept all 600 ish laws of the commandments of the Old Testament to the exact letter. To be a pharisaical scribe was to have the greatest influence on the future of God's people. Most of modern Judaism today has its lineage traced in a straight line to a pharisaical tradition in the best positive light as I present that. So to be a Pharisee was to live out what the word Pharisee meant in the original language. The word Pharisee meant separated ones. It captures this idea that the Pharisees were set apart, right? So when you think about the word set apart, what word associates in your mind with set apart? Holy. That's what Pharisees meant. So so put it in a way that makes sense to us, right? Jesus is taking that person who you might consider to be the most holiest, worthy of respect and honor, right? Taking that place of prominence, of influence over your life, you know, like celebrity pastors or public figures or bloggers, influencers, whatever. Whoever you hold dear, Jesus is making that person the enemy of the story. Do you see why now what Jesus is saying is so fundamentally shocking? So look at verse 11 and read again what it says. The Pharisee, or the separated one, is standing by himself. That's no accident that those words are together. This is telling us that he is going to be in the place of the greatest influence, the greatest respect, and honor in the temple. And where is that? Right next to the sanctuary, by himself. He has positioned himself in the place of highest honor, like an altar to himself. Right? And scholars say that that place where he is standing is most likely closest to the holiest place in the temple. So how he's viewing himself is essentially that he is so holy that even his coming to the temple deserves recognition. He wants his own Pharisees Appreciation Month. He's trying to position himself by his title and by his actions, and saying this is what makes me close to God himself. He views himself already, even before he breathes one word in his prayer, as worthy more than the others who have come to the temple to pray. And what does he pray? In his prayer, we discover our second point of today's sermon, how we view others. And we do that in seeing how the Pharisee views others. And in this, look at this, second half of verse 11 with me. The The Pharisee prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I I tried to do that in my most negative political ad voice. That's kind of the tone here, right? What he's trying to say. Look at this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Where, Where do we even begin with what's wrong with this prayer? Here's very quickly maybe eight things that we can... Number one, he believes that God made him better than others. The false gratitude given to God in prayer isn't meant to actually give thanks to God. It's meant to be sort of this passive-aggressive shade to other people in the room, right? Passive-aggressive shade is the worst kind of shade because you're too much of a coward to say it directly, so you use the name of God to do it. Number two, he believes that the others are made less in the image of God than he is. He takes human dignity away from those made in the image of God and places a completely subjective value of his life above others because of his occupation, his status, his activity, and his position. I mean, after all, what's the first thing that you try to do when you try to win a war? You dehumanize your enemy. Because it turns out it's much easier to destroy, gossip, slander, kill, maim, person in front of you if you don't think that they are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. You need to assert your dominance over them by creating an aura of your righteousness, of your power, your background, and your achievements, and you use it to threaten them. So what's the only conclusion that can come from such this is abuse and abuse towards others. Number three. He believes that the sins of others keeps them unacceptable before God. He has made their sins into their identities, and he has made their sins their primary identity. No longer can they be humans made in the image of God. They must be extortioners. No longer can they be fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. They are unjust. No longer can they be people who are loved by God, but they are adulterers and tax collectors. In other words, he's saying that there's a limit to how much grace God will give to you before you are labeled by your worst sin and therefore need to be discarded. And we do this all the time. This person's a liar, this person's a cheat, this person's a gossiper. We throw around these labels, and we think it grants us the power to state that, therefore, they are unredeemable before God. All the time. Number four, he believes that the sins of others make them unredeemable. So it's not only enough that they're unacceptable before God, but that they're beyond salvation. This is why we hear sometimes in our culture being tossed around all the time we say the only good blank is a dead blank what are we saying when we say when you hear when we hear things like that in our culture we're hearing things of this person is not just unacceptable before god but even not worth saving number five he believes that his judgments about others are true The assumption is that his judgment about himself is inerrant, and that his judgments, therefore, are about others are inerrant. So, living as a Pharisee has given him this delusion that his title and his position allows for him to proclaim the judgment of God himself. Number six, he believes that he is blameless against the very sins the one that he's judging. Now, Jesus purposefully makes this Pharisee not know his Old Testament. Because if this Pharisee knew his Old Testament, how is Israel described in the Old Testament? Hosea 9.1, God calls them adulterers. Malachi 3.8, God calls Israel thieves. Jeremiah 6.13, God calls the Israelites unjust. And yes, even in Nehemiah 10.32-33, he calls them to collect taxes. Pharisee himself, his own knowledge of redemptive history should have had him realize that he is just as capable of committing the very actions that he condemns others in doing. As one of my pastor friends says, he says, "Don't think that you are above that worse sin that you think that you condemn in someone else. You are not." And Pharisee should have realized that himself. Number seven. He believes that religious activity makes him better than other people. Now, to be fair, if, if we had everyone in this congregation fasting twice a week, we'd be a, we'd be a holy people. We, we, we as pastors, we'd love that. We might be starving, but you know, holiness, weight loss plan, whatever, right? Like, um, fasting is hard. If you've ever done one of those 30-hour fasts, it, it's really difficult, it's painful. To be fair, right, we'd all appreciate more Devotion to God. But if it's in the service of ego, if you're doing it to serve yourself, it's all hollow. Number eight, religious giving makes him better than others. So not only just religious activity, but religious giving. What do we see here? That it's not about your religious actions or your gifts, but it's about your heart. It's about your heart. If I say to you, I gave $5 to the poor and that is all I had, it's a solid statement, right? Jesus would, would probably be on board. But if you said, I gave $1,000 to the poor for tax breaks, uh, we start questioning you a little bit, right? It's a little less solid, right? We're saying, well, you know, you did good. Um, there's a side benefit to that. That's fine. It's great. And we should, you know, take advantage of laws in place for us. Yeah, great, right? That's, but a little less solid, right? If, if that's the first thing that you say about your giving, right? But what if you said this? I gave a million dollars to the poor because I'm a better human being than them. Does it doesn't matter at that point how much you've given. I mean, sure, they might appreciate the gesture. Sure, it certainly might have helped a ton of people but you have just demonstrated in saying that I have given $1 million because I'm better than them, how untrue that statement actually is. So when you line up all of these eight things together, what you see is this picture of Jesus saying, this Pharisee is ultimately delusional. It's delusional. And why does Jesus do this? Because he wants to show us, you and I, that apart from the Holy Spirit in and working through your life, we are this delusional. Did you catch that? Did you catch it? Right? Look at those eight things that the Pharisee was doing wrong again and see how this applies to yourself. Number one, how often in your life, even though you haven't said it, you thought, God has made me a better person than that guy or gal over there. Don't stare right now. Right. <laughs> Number two, how many times have you turned on the news seen someone that you vehemently disagree with and thought to yourself, that person isn't as human as I am. Number three, how many times, and four, how many times have you seen someone sin in a sinful pattern and thought to yourself, well, there's no use for that person now. God surely can't redeem that person. Number five, how many times have you used your faith as a weapon to proclaim eternal damnation on a person's life as though you were God? Number six, how many times have you labeled others without realizing the label you're referring to could actually be powerfully applied in your own life? And lastly, seven and eight, and I'm speaking specifically to Christians here now, how many times have we used the church service, the size of our offerings, the number of devotionals that we do throughout a week to mask the fact that, That we really don't love and worship Jesus, but we love and worship ourselves. You see, if your only takeaway from this story is, well, that Pharisee was a bad guy. And you don't see yourself in the narrative. And you haven't really gotten the point that Jesus is trying to make. The mirror he's trying to put in front of you. He's trying to free you from the delusion that you are as wonderful as you think that you are. And while we can lie to ourselves about that reality, the world continues to try and drown us in that delusion, right? What we're really finding out at this this time that we're in, deep down inside, is that we know the truth about our condition, don't we? And if we leave that alone without redemption, we find ourselves in despair. Or maybe even to the point where we start wanting to degrade others because we can't live with ourselves. The Pharisee is in both despair, and he's also degrading. He goes to the temple in the most prominent position to talk about the glory of himself. This is a man not worthy of your respect, but worthy of your pity. Because he can only gloat about himself in the moment where he's supposed to be boasting about God, whom he claims to love more than himself. You see, and in this, we, we see the heart of Jesus' parables. You see, the parables of Jesus aren't there to just give us moral lessons. It's to to tell us about what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And in this kingdom of God, you you get a little taste of what this kingdom is about. Heaven is to shatter the delusion that we are what's most important. Jesus is saying that this is the enemy of the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't care about your position in the public square, what accomplishes or influence that you think that you have. He cares that you see yourself rightly. And that's why Jesus chooses the Pharisee as the evil guy in the prayer. Being a citizen of God's kingdom is to refuse the narrative that you are somehow more deserving of grace because of what you have done. Being a citizen of God's kingdom is that you receive grace because God is gracious. And nothing more. This is what Jesus is trying to do. But if we were to leave the story at verse 12, well, there wouldn't be much hope there, would there? But Jesus' parables never leave us without hope. That's what makes all great parables and stories true. Look at verse 13 and see the third point of our sermon how, how we ought to view ourselves how we ought to view ourselves. Look at verse 13. We see this very stark contrast, a posture given to us by the tax collector. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with tax collectors back in, in, in biblical times, um, this isn't knocking the profession of being a tax collector. So if anyone here works for the IRS, know that Jesus is not gunning for you here, all right? Um, tax collectors in Jesus' time uh, had a special place of hatred in the heart of the Jews. They basically had three strikes against them. Number one, they they claimed to be Jews so they could live in Jewish communities, but only so that they could take the money from the Jews to give to the secular Roman Empire. Uh, Number two, uh, they were dishonest in the way that they collected taxes, uh, taking advantage of those who didn't understand the law or even extorting the poor and the marginalized by adding unnecessary superfluous taxes. Uh, Number three, they were in constant contact with Gentiles, not socially distant, right? So because of that, they were ceremonially unclean in the eyes of every Jew that knew them. So here you have an extortioner, someone who supported the adulterous culture of the Roman Empire, an unjust tax collector, who is defiled and now coming to worship in the sanctuary, where chances are he would probably be ceremonially unclean. And Jesus makes this person the hero in the story. Imagine this, right? Let's contextualize this. If Jesus said, the accountant for the terrorist ISIS organization came to Redeemer Presbyterian Church to pray, The treasurer of the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda, responsible for the murder and genocide of entire villages, came to the church to pray. This is the scandal that Jesus is trying to bring. This is the force and the weight of the story. Whereas the Pharisee stands to be seen and respected, the tax collector is standing far off, away from the sanctuary and the holiness that is required. So he's standing Far away from the holiness of the sanctuary. Whereas the Pharisee is praying where he could be heard, the tax collector could not even lift his eyes up to heaven. Whereas the Pharisee is thumping his own ego, the tax collector is beating his chest because he's so humiliated with himself. Whereas the Pharisee is using the name of God to proclaim his own worth, the tax collector uses the name of God to plead for mercy. You see all these. Dichotomies that are being present here. Jesus is reversing the paradigm of those listening to him in his hairs. He's arguing against a performance-based culture that easily casts away sinners and declares themselves righteous. And he says, this isn't what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. He says that our redemption is only fully realized when we see our greatest need for Him to come into our weakness rather than shouting our worth. The word justified here in verse 14, if you look at it closely, is profound to us because the word, in a sense, is being used to describe this idea of not guilty. Think about this this tax collector, this supporter of the polytheistic state, this supporter of evil, walks home not guilty? This is the man who's done every evil imaginable. The Pharisee hadn't done any of this. The Pharisee had done all the good imaginable. What's the difference between the two? It was the way they viewed themselves and the way they viewed God and the way they viewed others. You see the way for friends, And I want to plead with you on this because we're so just accustomed to buy this narrative in our age. I want to plead with you. The way to be at peace with God is to realize that you cannot outperform Him. The way to be at peace with God is to know that you cannot outperform Him. The way to be holy is to realize that you cannot be the holy of holies. You who believe that you're most capable, most able, one day all of your faculties will fail. And with it will go everything that you've placed your identity in and your view of God and your view of others with it. But if you have placed your your, your capabilities in the right mind frame to know that it is only God who is enough, the cross is enough, you will realize the peace and freedom in knowing the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The cry of verse 14. Why does Jesus end his story like this? I want you to notice something that begs the question of Jesus' actual point of this whole story. One might walk away from this parable just thinking that Jesus wants people to treat each other with equity and love. What a nice little fable. And that certainly... While being an application of this parable, is the point. Jesus is telling us through this story how Jesus views himself and how he views you and I. What do I mean by this? His call to humility is not just a platitude on how to live your life, as important as that is. This is a call and mission of Jesus' life. Philippians 2, right? Came in the form of God, though he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the humbleness of our Savior, the humiliation of our Christ. He could have stood right in the middle of that sanctuary. He could have stood right in the Holy of Holies. And instead, he stood silent on a cross. Because he wanted to turn to God and speak on behalf of all of you. You tax collectors. You adulterers. You murderers. you, You unjust. And say to the Father, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. And he cries. It is finished and resurrects on the third day. And in that moment of greatest humility comes the greatest exaltation. The great moment where we realize that neither heights nor depths nor angels or demons nor princes or principalities can keep us from the love of God. This is the good news of our humble Savior, our exalted one, Jesus Christ. This is the one that can save both the religiously self-righteous and the morally corrupt. This is the grace that is extended to you and I in this parable here today. That's the good news of the gospel. That's my last page. I'm gonna have to fly without a script here. Friends, Jesus wants you to see who you really are. Jesus wants you to see how you view others. Jesus wants you to see how you should view yourselves and others. But most importantly of all, if you take one thing away from the sermon, you gotta take away this. Jesus wants you to see him. And he wants to see how he sees you. Not as... The one who has done so many impressive things that you have earned your way to heaven, not as one who is unredeemable because you have sinned against him, but one who is just simply loved because he has already died for you. He has already given himself up for you, and that you cannot perform him, but instead you can rest in his peace. And that changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which reminds us, Lord, of how delusional we really are without you. Father, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for the way that we place ourselves as a hero and instead have looked to others in contempt. Lord, Help us to see Jesus clearly, and may that transform the way that we love others. May that transform the way that we see others as you see them, as one made in the image of God, as one to be cherished, as one to be loved. God, we thank you for all that you are. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray all these things.